0: Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and um, as I always do at the moment it's Wednesday so I'm doing a Wednesday book review and I want to talk mainly um, today about the works of Linda Colley. Um, This by the way nothing's been sent to me by IB Toys this week this is simply my kind of admiration and fascination by um, Linda Colley and her writing and there are two books um, that I want to discuss today. Um, The first, obviously, being her uh, seminal work, Britain's, uh, which was published in the early 1990s, and the subtitle being Forging the Nation, 1707 to 1837, so from the Act of Union through to the coronation of Queen Victoria, um, that long 18th century um, that really sees the development of uh, a British national identity. Uh, And then she wrote an interesting book of essays two years ago called Acts of Union and Disunion, uh, which were featured as discussions on Radio 4. And the two books together are uh, extremely important ways of navigating really the the, the crisis that Great Britain exists in uh, at the moment, from um, independence referendums in Scotland through to uh, Brexit, Um, Britain is going through a prolonged and protracted um, series of existential questions about national identity. Now, obviously, the the point that Linda Colley makes in Britain's is that you have uh, three kingdoms and a principality, uh, England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, Uh, fused together uh, in this one uh, kind of multinational, Um, a multi-ethnic conglomeration um, which is dominated by England, Um, so much of what is considered to be British uh, national identity really ultimately is English national identity that is um, transposed to some extent, some extent willingly, and others with uh, reluctance uh, onto the the other parts of, of the British Isles. But uh, Linda Colley says that there are a number of um, key um, explanations for this, um, uh, the the, the, the development of a sense of Britishness. Um, Not just the um, political act of unifying Scotland and uh, England and Wales, uh, and later Ireland in 1800, but um, the actual development of a sense of shared national identity, of people considering themselves to be British, as opposed to as opposed to being English or Scottish, um, this um, develops um, partly due to the growth in um, commerce and trade and empire, i.e., um, there was great business to be done in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, and um, the new uh, Britons together uh, could have uh, a part to play in that um, in um Scottish Welsh and Irish um, histories um, often the um the, the Celtic role in things like Empire and the slave trade is rather played down but you only need to look in the uh, records uh, of countries like Barbados and Jamaica to find the uh, a wide variety of Welsh Scottish and Irish um, plantation owning uh, plantation owners, um, uh, ships captains transporting slaves backward and forth, investors in the slave trade, uh, plantation overseers, so on and so forth. Uh, so it is um, far from being an exclusively English enterprise, despite uh, how comforting that might be. Um, So trade was um, uh, important, empire was important, but also Protestantism, the development of a Protestant British Isles uh, seemingly under siege from the uh, monstrous overseas um, uh, Catholic threat, which when you read about uh, about it um and you read about the, the kind of the obsessional fear of Catholicism, in uh, Diane Perkiss's um uh, The English Civil War of People's History, um the the uh, fear of uh, Catholicism uh, seems to be almost slightly analogous to McCarthyite anti-communism in, in the nineteen fifties, or um on the eve of the Civil War, all sorts of ludicrous conspiracy theories, that the Catholics are uh, sabotaging bridges and um, uh, having uh, planning uh, assassinations and all, all, all sorts of ridiculous things. Um, and there's an interesting bit in Diane Perkis' book where it goes back into the early life of John Pym, who apparently, uh, one of the um, uh, chief um, uh, Puritan um, parliamentarians who conspires... Um, to defy the king, and one of his earliest recollections, so the story goes, is that of the Spanish Armada uh, sailing um, uh, sailing along uh, the English coast. The sort of um, the sort of experience um, that would perhaps would clearly go on to shape the the rest of his life and his views of Catholicism. So there has been this um, sense of anti-Catholicism in the British Isles, Um, and that means that um, the indigenous Catholic peoples of Ireland and the uh, Catholics who continue to live in England, Wales and Scotland um, obviously found um, their relationship with this new sense of Britishness at best uh, complicated, um, perhaps reluctant, and perhaps um, existed um, as they would have done as uh, anti-Catholic laws were introduced in the uh, 16th, 17th, and later 18th centuries, particularly in Ireland, um, as outsiders and um, and in many ways victims of, of this this new British state. The um, culture of Britishness um, that uh, it, as emerges. Um, as a, a country that sees itself and every country has this myth um, in some way or another and sees itself as exceptional or has this notion of exceptionalism about it um, is manifested religiously in the 18th century by um, various um, theologians and writers referring to England as Jerusalem. And the English, as the the Israelites, um, the um, righteous and the um, noble, um, who are God's elect, God's chosen people, and have, who have this um, this septile uh, in which to uh, to to live. Now, that's all fine and well, but the thing that really interests me is the processes by which national identity in general are formed. And I know I go, along, uh, I go on about it a lot, but you can't do far um, better than getting Benedict Anderson's book, Imagined Communities, uh, and he um explores the different stages of the development of national identity he and has a very very eclectic approach and looks at how it's been formed in different um uh, in different parts of the world but in general in specific time periods there are there are clear factors that make the development of national identity particularly in Europe um a, a almost kind of a, kind of a unified process um, the one of those is the decline in the notion that the trans uh, um, national or uh, the international uh, notion of Christendom so the idea that um a christian in england a christian in germany or a christian uh, in france uh, might have Uh, a shared sense of national identity. If this ever was the case, certainly by the 16th century it's in steep decline. The power of the church um, to be able to exert this um, uh, transnational notion of solidarity is in decline. And why? Because new ideas of uh, uh, of conceiving of identity are in the rise with an increase in literacy across Europe, An increase in publishing. People are basically able to read and write and talk and discuss about who they are and what their countries stand for. And you have a an increase in publishing in the vernacular language. So you've got a decline in Latin. Um, People aren't reading it any, uh, um, or people aren't publishing it any longer. Not that many people could read it anyway. And uh, priests are not um, are less inclined to do sermons in Latin. Uh, as there's as a, a uh, pressure for vernacular teaching. Um, and as people began to um, speak and discuss and talk about religion, which is the main ideological and um, cultural epicentre of their worlds uh, in German or in English um, in their respective countries, um so a, a sense of uh, a weakening of bonds to rome occurs and a weakening of uh, of the idea of christendom um which has been based really on the uh, the old structures of the roman empire anyway that occurs and you get the opportunity for um new political thinking um if you look at the um past histories the, the, the life stories of people like thomas cromwell for example one of his Two of his great inspirations were both Martin Luther and Niccolo Machiavelli, both of whom s- discuss about the um, need for a king to be sovereign in his realm, uh, not to be um, answerable to a-, a transnational force. And the only one that they would possibly be referring to would have been Rome. Um, and the Reformation, uh, the break with Rome, really is a kind of an indication of this notion of a rise in um, uh, distinct national identities. Um, it would be difficult to suggest that Tudor England was experiencing what you would call nationalism, um, but some sorts, some of the, the kind of the foundations for uh, later nationalism are are definitely there. Um, it's it's interesting now here in the twenty first century, the references, the Brexit references that are, uh, or the Henry the Eighth references that are included within various uh, Brexit discussions and ideas. So the the kind of the other bookend um, book, if you will, in this discussion is Acts of Union and Disunion by uh, Linda Colley, um, and this was again out in twenty fourteen and extremely prescient. As it discussed the possible breakup of the European Union, uh, it looked at it. Actually, looks at the United States as well, and um, looks at how the union, the political union in the United States, may well hold together. Almost certainly, will hold together, but the society that um, exists um, uh, alongside it has become more fragmented than ever. And the overall point that she makes, which she discusses the fall of the Soviet Union in there, and the overall point that she makes throughout the book is that political unions very often outlast the economic and social conditions that uh, prefigure them. Society is changing all the time. The world is being economically transformed through technology and innovation all the time. Um, and, the, and, and institutions are always playing catch-up. Um, the uh, institutions have, uh, by their very nature, uh, fixed um, ideological preconceptions, fixed economic um, uh, structures, and um, they are bureaucratic and unwieldy, and they can't keep pace with um, the the dramatic changes that are sweeping the world, particularly in the twenty first century, with things like automation and um, the uh, development of artificial intelligence, and you know, even the uh, possibility of uh, you know mass human redundancy in in the next decade or so. So, those are all the crises for the future. Anyway, and this podcast is about the past. So let's get back on focus. But yes, Linda Colley makes the the, the point that um, the the unions that really un- underpin the world. The United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union and even the Soviet Union um, have lifespans. And the problem for us when we think about the possibility of the end of the United Kingdom, which is a a distinct possibility, uh, depending on what happens in in Scotland, is that we conceive of them uh, in terms of Permanence, and um, why wouldn't we? Our entire culture is designed to um, foster this notion. Our um, public acts of moralisation for the First World War, the Remembrance Sunday, uh, things like the the cenotaph and institutions as varied as the Royal Albert Hall to the BBC, um, give us this notion that the world in which we live has fixed, firm foundations that are immovable. Um, And the reality is that that, that's that's not the case Um, and that uh, institutions, I mean, one of the reasons why um, Great Britain has a durable parliamentary democracy, is that it evolves shifts and changes periodically when it experiences uh, insurmountable external challenges, such as the demand for suffrage uh, throughout the 19th century. And we need to create the uh, the myth of permanence, I mean nationalism does this very well, it um, is A decidedly modern idea that needs to go deep into the past and cherry-pick aspects of a national story to give a sense of coherence. Uh, that all people really thrive on a sense of um, uh, a long and normally rather glorious story with the rather, rather murky bits edited out. Um, in order to help people try to navigate the senses of national identity in the present, who they are and uh, what they are meant to be doing as national citizens, and Benedict Anderson points out that you know they, if you, if you were to you know perhaps come down from Mars and look at the idea of nations and national identity, it really is rather a curious institution that we've created for ourselves, and this this extra layer of identity that human beings seem to need other than individual parent son father. Uh, mother, daughter, that kind of thing um, Britain, Scots, Welsh, Irish, American um, or multiplicities of that um, have um, a, an important role to play and I suppose that as people uh, become uh, more literate as people become um, more um, avail- more um, armed with information or they're able to access more information Thus questions about where one sits in this complicated world that we we, we now uh, inhabit and encounter uh, and what one 's identity what one 's sense of shared past is become more more pressing. You only need to go and look at the uh, the the uh, points that Orlando Figes makes in russia a people 's tragedy when he um, talks about the peasants of Russia. Um, in the late 19th century, who would identify with their village. And, you know, uh, based on the information they have about the world, if you were to ask a 19th century Russian peasant where they come from, he would probably point at the soil and say, well, I'm, I'm from here. I'm a man of this place. Um, and so information, the development of information and the in uh, various information revolutions we've been through since the Renaissance have had a distinct bearing on notions of national identity. Anyway... I commend to you very greatly um, Britons by Linda Colley, um, Acts of Union and Disunion by Linda Colley, of course, Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. And another great read, if you're fascinated by the ideas are, uh, in this podcast and the ideas of British national identity, is David Reynolds' The Long Shadow. And the point that he makes in that book is that the the kind of their um, fissile nature of British national identity that we are destined to split up at some point was really put on hold uh, by the crises of the 20th century. Two world wars uh, and the experience of Cold War, uh, David Reynolds suggests, has really acted as a kind of a, a glue that's held the United Kingdom together and a, a stay of execution. Um, that has uh, given it an unnaturally long lease of life, and now that uh, the Cold War is over, uh, in the the decades that have followed it, uh, gradually um, those bonds have weakened. Whether this is the case or not, we shall have to see. Um, anyway, I hope you found that interesting, and I'll catch you uh, later this week with more art from the Explaining History podcast. Remember, go give us a like, go onto iTunes, find the podcast. Give us a five-star review, it'll do uh, the podcast a world of good and we can it means we can keep supplying you with awesome content. Take care, bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus,